0: to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my new buddy from the band Death Cab for Cutie, Nick Harmer, is on the show today, and this is a fantastic conversation, and I'm very excited for you to hear it. More on that in one second, but first... If you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at There There is a Instagram page, a YouTube page, a TikTok page, and a Facebook page, all for Turned Out of Punk. All of those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on those respective platforms, and check out the videos that get posted on there that I make or, or shows a lot. I don't post a lot of the new shows on my feed. That's mainly on the turn into punk feed. So if you want to keep up to date on this podcast, follow that turn into punk stuff. Well, mainly on Instagram or in Facebook, follow it on all that shit. All right. I also play in a band. We are called fucked up. You can find out more information at fucked up.cc. We are going on tour with the, the legends, super chunk in a few weeks at the end of January, beginning of February, up and down the west coast of the United States, dipping into Canada. Well, I'm excited for this one. This is a big one for me. Uh, we also have some new records, as always, and and merch, and all sorts of fun stuff over there at fuckedup.cc and also at fuckedup on all those social media things. If you enjoy the type of stuff that Mike posts on YouTube, Twitter and Instagram and all those places he has relaunched the infamous fucked up bo- uh, blog bog, blog blog uh, lookingforgold.blogspot.com I'm pretty sure that's still the URL he's written a couple posts there great essays about records and it's it's a fun read mike's a good writer it pains me to admit it but mike is a really good writer all right on to that was awkward i should <laughs> Mike's a great writer. Check out the plot. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Nick Armour is here from Death Cab for Cutie. Death Cab for Cutie are like a bunch of punk and hardcore kids in the in this giantly massive, important like, you know, like rock band, I guess, for lack of a better term. Indie band, huge band, uh, fantastic band. But they're all like hardcore and punk kids. So when Nick... Uh, was suggested coming on the show. We, we had to do it, and my God, am I glad we did it. This was a fun conversation with uh, a, a new buddy. That's what I do this podcast. Once in a while, you get to make a friend. Sometimes it doesn't go that way, but well, you know when it does, it's a good feeling. Nick, as I said, plays in Death Cab for Cutie, who have just released an acoustic version of Asphalt Meadows. You can find out more information at deathcapforcutie.com or check all those streaming sites where you listen to this podcast, potentially, uh, if they have music, you can also find this record on there. You can also order vinyl copies. Head over to deathcab4cutie.com and find out about that. And while you're there, check out the dates for this postal service Death Cab for Cutie Super Tour that is happening this spring and into the summer. You can find out all this information over at uh, deathcab4cutie.com. But they're going to go all over the place with this tour because it is the 20th anniversary makes some of us feel very old when you hear that, of give up and transatlanticism. And you can find out more information, as I say, at deathcatforguity.com. Maybe you'll be at one of those shows. They're playing all over, it looks like, Canada, the U.S., Portugal, England. Hey, check that website yourself. All right, I'm not going to ramble on any more. Sit back, relax,
1: and enjoy Nick Harmer on Turned Out a Punk.
0: Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. It's quite quite a, a stellar cast to be a part of. You've had some really great guests. Well, I
0: talked to Ben a couple years ago, and uh, you know, I think yourself checking out these interviews with you leading up into this. I think the the punk side of Death Cab for Cutie is kind of underplayed by people a little bit i've, I've come to realize yeah i it. mean it's
1: it's certainly not evident necessarily in our music uh and it is one of those things that i think was an early bond between ben and i when we were finding each other just as friends uh that influences a lot of uh what we like in our aesthetic but if because it's not evident necessarily in, in music and in other outward ways it we never very rarely we never use the word punk to describe what we do uh, in any real way in fear of immediate retribution <laughs> from the the gatekeepers of the definition of that word. So, um, you know, I think there is an uh, there is an approach and an aesthetic and a, and a, a way of life that, that speaks to us that we have carried carried through our band as much as possible. It's it's there, you know.
0: As as we were talking about before we started recording, you know, as you get older, your perspective on on these things changes. And so at one time, I was very orthodox in what I felt was punk or hardcore, yeah. and now I, yeah. I I'm much more of like uh, adherent to the idea. Like you're talking about, it's more of a philosophical thing. And that yeah. as long as it connects to the to the core, it's punk. Yeah. And I think it gets way more interesting when the sonics not reduced to like.
1: I mean, I I felt the same way, you know, when I was a kid, what initially drew me in was outward displays of what would be very stereotypical punk, you know, I mean, there were, there was a, uh, a, an older uh, kid in the uh, junior high, a couple of kids that were like, I mean, Liberty Spike Mohawks and the, you know, these kinds of things like very declarative fashion and hairstyle choices that I was just enthralled by. I thought how, wow, how brave of these these dudes to just like do that, you know, and like buck, buck the system, you know, this would have been in like mid to late eighties, you know, I graduated high school in 93. So my formative years of junior high were, you know, heading into, you know, 87, 88, 89, 90, I was in high school. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I was drawn in by the fashion and the sort of the, like, like I said, what I think is a little bit more just easily identifiable punk stuff uh, but then over time, as I've talked to just people who have been in the punk scene, and people who make punk music, you know, if that's how you even want to, you know, overtly describe some stuff, it very quickly you zero in on just the philosophy that binds everybody together, uh, an approach and an outlook on life more than, than, uh, than a hairstyle or a, a you know, um, uh a painted leather jacket or something that, you know, I guess more, uh, if you, you know, if you were really to subscribe to like more standard imagery of, of punk as it was, uh, and that actually spoke to me, it made me feel okay, you know, a little less, a little less on the outside. And I found actually some of my, you know, good, my best friends that way, uh, realizing that we could connect on, on, you know, like you said, philosophy more than, than anything. And then always the music was great, but I could start to see it show up in lots of different music, whether it was, you know, other things that I was interested in. And and then I th- then there was an answer of like, why am I gravitating to bands like The Cure and, and REM and all these other things? And I'm like, ah, because I see a thread of commonality in, in their approach to their careers and things that that resonates with me. And that that you know, that's that's kind of actually kind of a thread that runs through a lot of my most favorite records, I think, you know. Yeah,
0: I think if you look at the original six of CBGBs, where you have, Patti Smith, Television, Blondie, Talking Heads, Ramones, um, yep. Dead Boys, maybe seven because also Wayne County, Jane County. Sorry. Yep. Um, if you took those seven, you kind of have like the representatives of what this music is, and it's like it's 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 art. Yeah. it's yep. pop yep. punk. It's it's
1: all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, and it's it's just sort of all bound together, like you said, by like a, a a philosophy around just trying to push into some territory that is uh, maybe at times uncomfortable and and messy, and then other times is very refined and actually, you know, hyper-intelligent in a way. I, I always liked that punk kind of oscillated between just pure explosions of emotion, unchecked, and very thoughtful, considered, like highly intelligent positions. You know, like it had this... Uh, you know, you could kind of find a connective tissue, depending on what I was sitting with in in my life, you know, was I just angry, then that's there, you know, was I also like, you know, pondering the ramifications of capitalism in, you know, in a global scale? Yes, that's there, you know, like, you could kind of really get into these things. uh, I think, to me, it just makes it a really deep well of, of inspiration, and then also just connectivity, you know, you can find multiple entry points into it if you look well let's find out
0: your entry point when was the nick when was the first time you ever came across
1: it so i i was reflecting upon that like coming into this podcast kind of thinking back and i i I can identify in my mind two moments uh i was sent away to a sleepaway camp when i was a kid and in junior high seventh grade i went to a ymca camp locally and there were three kids at this camp that were in that like full stop like i guess this would have been in like 86 87 somewhere in there um and they were just punks i mean one of them absolutely shaved skinhead another one um safety pin in an ear like i mean and they were so different from this sort of small town i mean i grew up in a family my dad was uh he's retired now but he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the u.s army my mom was a lifelong uh educator and teacher so I had this interesting dichotomy at the dinner table between very liberal kind of you know education first policies for my mom and very conservative you know militaries first policies for my dad, and kind you know we I wouldn't say I lived in a real locked down straight laced home but we had the you know small town values and and that kind of upgrading solidly middle class and I go to this camp and I see these three kids that just don't look like anything that I've ever really come across. And they just seem like the coolest dudes ever. I mean, honestly, like I was just, I was like magnet drawn to what about them? I just liked that they just didn't fall in. And that was enough for me that they were able to sort of, they were here at this camp, but they were just always kind of doing their own thing. And that was interesting to me. And then at the junior high I was at, there was this band, they were called the Yellow Pages at the time and then later changed their name, but they were a few, uh, uh, some kids, a few older, uh, years older than me. And just a, a straight skate punk band, um, you know, had this really magnetic singer. His name was Kevin. Just always challenging authority, always just pushing the line. Uh, his bandmates were incredibly great skateboarders. They had this little skate posse and like they just kind of and they, they would put on, and you know, surprisingly, like our, I remember our, our junior high allowed them to play a show outside of the gymnasium on like the last day of school one year. They did a cover of Nina's 99 lift Balloons uh, in this like punk, you know, real fast punk style. And I was just entrenched. I just thought they, this was the coolest thing I could have ever seen. I, at that point, I was playing clarinet in the band and I was like done with the clarinet. I'm playing electric guitar, picked up an electric guitar. And I, I mean, it would just changed so many of these things. And I, I still had to kind of walk this line where like I was drawn to this life and music and this these things. But I couldn't really... I was never brave enough. I'll just say it. Like I probably could have, you know, decided to fall in and start really pushing the line at the home front, doing that kind of stuff. But in the end, I was kind of a bit of a coward and it was just too scared about what that would mean for, you know, the world and judging me and all of these things. I was just too, too scared. So I loved that. And I was really drawn to them. And then again, later, um, which is kind of just a, the way this kind of works, Kevin, the singer of that band, we had this program in in our, Um, high school called um, what were they called it was like a it was like a a, 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 maybe a pilot program or something through the counseling office where the school counselor identified students across different you know socioeconomic classes um, you know style all of this stuff styles race gender all of it and they kind of just found people that they could teach how to be leaders and or resources for people maybe in their group in their social group if they were having mental problems like you know crises or problems and at the time it seemed to me like a really like honorable program like here's this they're inserting these you know peers into groups with some level of training they would send them to these camps you know and train them how to react to a crisis situation or how to de-escalate someone who was you know having Problems or something like that, and I was like, "This is amazing!" And I went to this camp. I feel like it was called like Young Leaders or something. I don't know. Anyway, I went to this camp, and we would get partnered with older mentors. And my mentor at the camp was Kevin from this punk band. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm at this camp, and you know, here he is. You know, sneaking off to have cigarettes. You know, he taught me all about using egg whites and glue. I mean, he put stuff up in his hair and all. But he was the first one. He was like, you know, they. That what they're doing is they this is a surveillance program, right? You know what they're doing. They're teaching us how to spy on our friends. And then we have supposed to report back to the administration and they're going to get these kids in trouble. And like, we're the first line of defense here, you know, like, and he had completely recontextualized this program <laughs> that I thought was a really good and noble program to help struggling youth, you know, as they're coming to into their, you know, and, and I was like, Holy shit, he's right. I mean, like there is a level of this that's like, fall in everybody, like learn the ropes and 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 tell on the kid that needs the, the help, you know, get them. And as soon as I kind of, and anyway, he kind of, as he was my mentor, we spent a lot of time at that camp together talking and he just, that's when I became really aware of this sort of punk philosophy more than the music. And and I realized very quickly for all of his ragged out, you know, his his exterior that was very kind of, you know, I guess to provoke some shock and response, was one of the most intelligent people that i had encountered in high school at that point very thoughtful very well read uh had an incredibly uh wise perspective on power structures and things and i just that that was it i I was off and running so he and 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 then would recommend bands you know from from there it grew into you know here check out minor threat check out you know and i was aware of you know kind of the bigger stuff ramones and minor threat I, i never pulled off into like misfits territory Uh, the exploited showed up circle jerk showed up. There was a lot of kind of skate punk uh, stuff that was more West coast. That was like, uh, you know, at that time I remember bands like DRI and um, there was a Seattle kind of metal-ish punk band called the accused that were doing well. Yeah. Right. Um, But they kind of walked a little bit more of a, a, of a line there that wasn't quite so overtly punk. Uh, but still definitely had that, that aspect, you know, covering angry Samoan songs and that kind of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. so like those, those things like registered to me and they, and they mattered. Plus he was in this band and that was like the local music in the small town. So we would go see, you know, his band play with other punk bands and that kind of was my first entry into like a this philosophy and B music. And from there, then I was kind of off and running on my own. So I, I I found the then I found the kinds of things that kind of spoke to me emotionally and otherwise. And some of those were more punk bands. Some of those were you know goth and new age bands, new wave bands. Um, yeah, so I, I it kind of spread a real you know tapestry out from that point. You know, it's interesting. Um, like, are, you, are you from Paliup or Tacoma? So so yeah, it's it's called it's pronounced Puyallup. Oh, sorry, things. Puyallup. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Puyallup. Yeah, i was no, trying to figure right. it out. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's a yeah. It's it's a Puyallup uh, is the is a small town. Yeah, and Tacoma is the sort of big city that was adjacent. So you know, when I was coming up, there was you know exactly there were house parties and backyards that shows could happen at. There was like a, a downtown sort of community center that they would throw shows at every once in a while. But mainly, it was just you know, hopping around and and doing house parties and playing in people's garages and stuff. And so Puyallup had a kind of underdeveloped scene. Tacoma had bars and like more venues to play. Uh, And then, you know, but it was just, you know, this was pre the grunge explosion. This was pre Seattle making it. So it was kind of just, you know, there was no illusion of, you know, like career or making or anything. It's just what you did because there was nothing else to do in Puyallup, you know, Um, and Uh, That's kind of the foundation around it It was just like, these are like-minded individuals. We're getting together, playing music, hanging out, whatever, you know? And then, then it started to crest. Then Seattle started to happen. And that, that kind of changed a lot of, of, of dreams and and perspectives. I think too. One of
0: my favorite Pacific Northwest hardcore bands is from your hometown. Suburb. Yeah.
1: I don't know that band from Puyallup. Yeah. No way. I I got it. Now you've just turned me on to something brand new. I've got to get (laughs) it. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm so intrigued by stuff that comes out of Puyallup because it's just an interesting little suburb of nowhere, you know. Uh, that's awesome. Subvert, I'm writing it down right
0: now. Yeah, Subvert. They were like this totally raging um, kind of late 80s. Once again, like the metal influence is in there. It's definitely heavier, but yeah. still like super fast. They super did an LP fun. on Rage Records, and then they did a 7-inch that got like a German label picked it up way back in the day too. But they yeah. were on Pusshead, you know Pusshead the artist yeah yeah it did like a list of the best records from 1981 to 1990 and they were on the list i think they're number like 60 something
1: on the list wow i you know what that is that is a total blind spot for me thank you i love it i can't wait they're awesome (laughs) yeah cool but
0: but i like you're saying it's it feels like i guess it's always brought up in these documentaries like the pacific northwest kind of had to develop its own scenes because not as many bands came through. So like the bands, it's it's
1: a local kind of scene. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, the notion, I mean, there was not a lot of bands would go farther than San Francisco. I mean, maybe you'd get up to Portland, but again, if you were headed into Portland, then you were definitely doing Portland, Olympia, Seattle, Vancouver, Canada, you were into that zone. But if you didn't, if you didn't go any further North than San Francisco, and it's quite a long way, you know, you got to imagine these, These are the days when you know. These are self-funded tours. People are paying for gas. Like just the gas alone to get from from Portland, Oregon to San Francisco or Seattle was enough of a of a math equation that people were like, "Look, we're not coming out ahead here. We we can't make the drive. Can't afford to get up there." There was a gas crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. In some ways, the isolation kind of allowed for this sort of scene to form and 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 you know get forged in its own way. I, I I've you know it was a really fun time to be in. I was a little bit young for the grunge explosion because that was happening in the bars in Seattle. and I was under 21, but it was so fantastic as a, as a young kid being a fan of music, seeing how these things, how the local scene grew into, and you know, and, and, and when that happened, just what that meant for just your overall just outlook and disposition in life. Like I, there was a, There was a moment when I remember my friends and I, we were like, you know, if you were in a band, you were you had to move to L.A. or New York to make it or to have a career or something. And there was just this moment when we realized, like, you could be from Seattle and be in a band like how you didn't have to be from one of these big cities, these other cities, you know, this is awesome. Like, holy, holy mackerel. And then even more so when Seaweed uh, got big in in Tacoma, um, they were a Tacoma band. They were like the biggest rock stars we could imagine. I mean, honestly, that a band from Tacoma got signed to Sub Pop Records uh, and, you know, having seen them in Grange Halls and random little community centers and people's backyard, like seeing these shows, it was just, I mean, honestly, it was just kind of like, oh, the world is full of infinite possibility, isn't it, guys? You know, let's just sit down and dream because look at what happened to Seaweed, you know, and we did it. I mean, it was, that that was exciting, you know. Uh, uh, and and certainly gave a lot of push and interest in, in, in continuing to make music, you know? See, Which, we were such an incredible band. Like, oh. oh my gosh. So, so good. good. So, I mean, like, again, outsized for the... I mean, it's funny how that goes, right? There's always just, like... There's always the bands that are kind of around, and they're rocking, they're doing hard, and they're committed, and it's cool. And then there's just some band that, for whatever reason, on, like, almost a chemical level, it just clicks, and you're like, that is something completely different. That is leaps and bounds better than everything around it and its peers and it very clearly like there was no doubt that seaweed was awesome like immediately you know and how did they do it i don't know Just you know it was yeah one of my some of my fondest memories early on seeing that band play you know i'm sure you've seen it but you you know that documentary hype yeah oh
0: yeah love that. yes yeah there's that scene where that photographer and I'm blanking on his name. I feel bad about this, but he's showing the photos. He's got that photo of seaweed and it's at that moment that they're blowing up and there's all the cameras around them. And he's kind of like showing, and it's like, you're saying, it's so amazing. It's so, it's such a paradigm shift that happens
1: pre-Nirvana,
0: post-Nirvana for all underground music, but that city is just never the same. Never the same. Yeah.
1: And, and it was, I mean, again, for all of its, setbacks and growth i I don't know i I think it's a very complicated thing in these parts i think that there is there was clearly an incredible boost and benefit to having that that moment in time happen the way it did it also had a massive toll on a lot of really talented people uh that obviously you know that were still living in the the sort of ramifications of that and i think you know that's kind of the bargain that you have to kind of keep going back to i think there's people that would say yeah, I don't know if it was worth it. I don't know if losing my fr- my best friends um, was worth the exposure and the, the size that this got to. And then, you know, you look at the entire ecosystem that kind of came up around that and also see the benefit of it. And like we are Death Cab for Cutie is a band today because of what happened in Seattle. Uh, and we benefited from that explosion that happened before us. Uh, and we were able to there were lots of things in place by the time we came around as a band that we could take advantage of that were not non-existent before. You know, if we'd been abandoned any other period of time in Seattle, um, so you know, it's it it is interesting to kind of try to unpack that, but uh, but also exciting. You know, it really you know, like you said, it was a a dynamic and exciting time to kind of witness and sort of somewhat be involved in, I guess, in some ways, in, in the fact that we were just still all making music in garages, but. Well, that was
0: fun. Well, it's interesting to like how that Seattle brain drain that kind of would happen in music changed the course of music history. Like uh all these people that went to Roosevelt High School, like Nikki Six, El Duce from the Mentors, like friggin' yeah, um, Duff uh, McKagan, Duff McKagan, the Screamers, like, yeah, 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 they they're moving and they're winding up playing in these bands that are having massive impact. Like the Screamers are like one of the most important bands in LA punk from anyone you talk to from back then.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's wild, right? To see that, that exodus, and then boom, huge happens, you know, and then they all are still tied to this world in some ways. I don't, I, I find it interesting, because there's, there's a very interesting melting pot in grunge, like a really interesting nexus between metal and punk, uh, mm-hmm. that is, uh, you know, that, that, that was a, in a lot of ways, when a real crisp line between genres fell you know like it there was metal and there was punk and nary the twain met you know uh and and then suddenly the grunge thing really blurred some lines between what what was happening in both of those worlds in uh, i think a really interesting way
0: have you ever heard that 10 minute warning stuff
1: speaking of accusation yeah 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 totally yeah duff's played some of that yeah
0: yeah well that's like the birth of it to me like that's like that band is like that's yeah. kind of like Green River comes next, I guess, and then you know uh-huh. it just goes yeah. from there. But it's that's that yeah. sound,
1: totally. Yeah, it is. It's totally that sound. Yeah, you can kind of trace it uh, just on releases. You know, it is kind of a fun uh, exercise. I've never really, I mean, I'm you know, growing up and being aware of all of it is one thing. Sitting down and kind of studying the evolution of it is, and, and becoming a historian of it is quite something else. And uh, I I I oftentimes like. I, I see myself as a as a old, you know, deaf, can't hear music any longer, man sitting in a room just becoming an historian of the of the scenes I lived through, you know, at that point, absorbing that knowledge, I guess, in some ways. I'm just <laughs> we'll i getting ready
0: for retirement. That's my life. <laughs> you know, just sitting yeah. here but it's <laughs> other people's lives that I have nothing to do with that I'm obsessed with yeah. for some reason. Yeah,
1: right. Totally. <laughs> uh,
0: but it's like you're saying, it is this um this thing, especially that scene, which changes all of music. So it is something that's so fun to dive through and to like pick apart and to like look at where all these people went. And like, it's interesting though. Duff said that he didn't move to LA to make it or anything. He said it was heroin and it was like kind of like interesting coming to junkie
1: that freaked him out and chased him. I mean that, that certainly is a, is a through line, uh, I mean, no pun intended. That is a vein up here as well of connective tissue between a lot of that stuff. It's an interesting, yeah, heroin and specifically heroin through Seattle scene is, is a very interesting uh, uh, thing to open up. I, I, you know, it's so funny, like aware of it sort of abstractly, uh, never as a kid in Puyallup and, you know, growing up, and even going up into, you know, by the time we got to college uh, and we're doing, I mean, that, that that had sort of passed in, in terms of um it's uh common or it's I, I don't know it was just around a lot but i don't have any recollection of you know like you know walking in on a friend with a needle in his arm or any of that like I, we were not being in seattle proper we were a bit removed from it uh thankfully uh but also i was young enough uh that it it never the shadow of that never really touched um, into my life you know thankfully uh and but it's it it is present in the conversation you know as part of uh a variable in it for sure it's kind of so it's a weird it's it's a it's a weird darkness that i don't have any expertise or you know ability to talk about but i yeah it shows up in all the stories everywhere you know it, it feels like the heavy drug thing
0: in punk was also kind of generational a little bit. And yeah, the nineties, as much as it is a tragic time for the loss of some of these people. But like, I, I feel like the kids that were part of the hardcore punk scene in the nineties, it wasn't really as around as it would be kind of post the vice era when cocaine kind of comes back and then opioids yeah. and pills and all that shit kind of re-enters right.
1: everything. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's so interesting. Like I, I, I always found that to be a bit of a a, a strange um, lapse in punk logic somehow, um, which is interesting because you know the the straight edge logic that Ian Mackay was you know espousing and that sort of notion of you know that drugs were you know just another tool of the state for you know mind control and all of these things that like that all made sense to me you know like that that this was. These were, this was a, this was something to avoid because it made you passive. It made you, uh, and, and yet you'd see it show up in, you know, just in my so, social circles, not in the form of heroin, but like you said, later with, you know, methamphetamines, Coke, whatever, those kinds of things. And I always, that always made me very, like, just seemed incongruous with so much of the philosophy around it. It was like, why would you do that? And then you just realize that like, look, everybody's suffering and they're in pain and addiction is a disease and, and you understand it in a different way. But I remember early on my exposure to it was very like sort of, wow, that is one of the most unpunk thing I could think that you would do is drugs. Why would you (laughs) do drugs? You know, Uh, you seem to be such a, you're so righteous in every other aspect of your choices. And now you're doing, you know, but I get it. You know, I, I, I see, I see the, power of that and that and in and in of itself becomes a lesson in that way you know so uh you know it it's uh it is an odd thing that like i said I, is it's been around in my life but i'm very thankful that it's never really come directly home to roost you know i think Which it is good.
0: well i think that's also one of those universals in punk where every scene has this because as much as this is drawing some of the best and brightest and most talented people it's also drawing a lot of people with trauma that need the space uh, yeah. DL yeah
1: yeah yeah well and and yes i mean yeah two things like i mean certainly you're right a lot of trauma a lot of you know uh, you know this that's where like the emotion side of punk really connects is you know these you know people that are frustrated against and and yet also like to me there's there is such uh such an empathy in punk there people are wired to feel things very passionately uh and to feel the weight of the machine or whatever the world is, I mean, to feel that acutely, it's overwhelming. And I can easily understand where that is, you know, people spend time thinking about this in real ways daily. And, you know, there's, there's lots of people I've known in my life that, you know, just for whatever reason, you know, I'm not going to say they were unintelligent, but maybe just not interested in unpacking these kinds of things intellectually. Um, And, and so they, they didn't quite have that, that level of, like I said, um, they're, they're just like an empathy there that to me is, is, uh, is, it explains a lot of, of how the energy and the, 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 the sort of, um, spark in that punk community grew so hot is because people are I think they're just wired to feel things in big ways, you know, and they found each other. They're like-minded people. They, they connect with each other's empathy and their intelligence. uh, And, and it becomes overwhelming, you know, in a way that like, you know, genius drives madness, you know, (laughs) that that kind of a thing. And you can easily see how drugs become a balm for that level of, of intense feeling, you know? So again, very understandable. uh, Once you unpack it, like, but in the in its initial form and presentation to me, I was like, "Why? How? What is this? You know, uh, I don't. You should be all saying no, and they're like, you know, <laughs> just say no is what the government tells you to say. Like, yeah. Ah, crap, you got me. You know,
0: <laughs> well, that's and that's the thing is that we all have so many different definitions of it. Like at the same time, yeah. Ian McKay is doing Straight Edge, uh, Poison Ideas, putting out the Drinking Is Great comp, and yes. There's a a different kind of like philosophical approach to what it means to stand
1: in opposition to society. Well, you know, it's what's, what's really interesting to me is like that, that, that level of, yeah, you're exactly right. But also like that level of excess around drugs and alcohol was certainly put on a much different display in heavy metal. You know, um, and and you know, I'm, I'm thinking about those, you know, decline in Western civilization movies. When you look at, you know, part one, part two, and you see just the like excess of drinking and drugs that hair metal became, and then you, then there's the analog in the punk world, but it's so it's so dark, it's so much darker and more tragic in that way. And yet, the, it's both dark and tragic. But the 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 outward kind of manifestations of that look very different in those two worlds. And you know, I never really. I mean hair metal was fun and kind of exciting in like a theatrical way, but like n- never really spoke to me on any real intellectual or emotional level um and certainly when you added in all of this you know the excess of drinking and cocaine and all these other things, it just was like no man, that's just not life you know, and then you turn to your other side of things and you realize like yeah oh, it's it's all there too, just presents it in this in a slightly different way. Um, so you kind of couldn't get away from it. it, it you're right. It, it is funny that you can, and I would buy both records, you know, I would yeah. listen to, you know, I would, it wasn't that, you know, they had, they all kind of they completed a, a full picture, you know, like, a, yeah, you could literally put on a minor threat record and then turn around and, you know, talk about, you know, TV party or something. I don't know. It was just really funny. <laughs> I don't know. It's really, really i think it's like the same dna
0: that is in both and it comes from like the new york dolls and it's like just two different ways of viewing the new york dolls and one is like metal which is obsessed with the fantasy of things and the glamour and then punk is obsessed with the seedier side and the reality of it but both are like drug excess and all that kind of stuff but it's just yeah
1: different ways of viewing the prism i guess totally and like you said if you kind of go back to that original CBGB's crew. Like it comes out of you know art circles. it comes out of you know just an, a, a genuine desire to explore things that are uncomfortable, maybe taboo to push on lines and limits and 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 uh you know, and then you know when you throw in you know trauma and and mental health stuff it 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 becomes a a a, a fascinating kind of um to me, a, a fascinating thing to sort of spend time with. Like, I, I find it an infinitely exciting well of just too many people are quick to dismiss punk as a fashion statement only. Um, and I just think, wow, you just really haven't spent any time with it, have you? <laughs> like, you know, it, you know, this is this is not there are, of course, bands you can point to that stopped stopped right at the fashion line, but not many, you know, that mm. that, you know, that they, they gets into it pretty quickly. Well, I think like the,
0: the, even the fashion line is, is fascinating when you pursue that and you're like, oh yeah, Vivian Westwood comes out of this. (laughs)
1: That's a really great point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like, it changes
1: every like film, like how many great filmmakers came out of this? I know. Right. Yeah. And that's what you get into. You get into philosophy and like, that was the thing, you know, when Ben and I, when we first started in, in Cab, like, you know, like I, I was, you know, I was booking shows on campus. I was, I got involved with the arts office to bring music to campus and booking. So I booked, you know, as was part of booking shows. Like we, we brought Sonic Youth to our gym, but I booked, you know, uh, Jay Church and Steel Wool show in our, our, you know, cafeteria. I booked um, uh, Ben's first band pinwheel. And that's where we became friends uh, it, you know, just in that sense. And, But, you know, we had this real sense of like, you know, if the only way we're going to do this is if we make it, if we do it ourselves, if we take that sort of ethic from from punk rock around, you just got to roll your sleeves up and do it yourself. And that DIY thing really bonded us and the other musicians that we knew in town uh, into a pretty quick community of, hey, you know, we're pooling our gear, we're pooling, you know. Uh, our, our, our resources and knowledge. We are, you know, helping each other out when we can. I worked at the college radio station and I booked shows. So, you know, philosophy for me was whenever we had touring bands come through, I always went out of my way to book a local opener to start, you know, like that was just a simple thing. Like somebody from Bellingham, we got to get, we got to get local bands on stages, you know, and we have to have local music on the radio. So we're, we're prioritizing this stuff here you know, if you guys can make the music, we'll get it on the radio, you know, and like we we're starting this little ecosystem of helping each other out, you know, and that, again, that's how I found my friends. And then the music kind of grew out of that community. And, and Ben and I were lucky enough to uh, end up actually playing music together. But I mean, we were friends and roommates for years before I actually joined the death gab and we did a, and we, the death gab became a, became a, a band, you know? Um, so, uh, that that's kind of, and again, we bonded a lot over punk rock. I mem- I can still remember one of the first things I remember li- with Ben, he, when I first met him, he was talking about bands like Lagwagon and Blink uh, before they were Blink 182, you know, yeah. like, uh, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of these kinds of bands, I did not make my radar at all, even at the radio station and, and, and him you know, kind of exposing myself, or exposing me to a, a bunch of, uh, of, of of expressions of punk rock that i had come up even while i was just at college and being aware unaware of so like again that was kind of a a, a formative foundation for he and i's friendship that uh kind of i guess like i said became a, a a a bit of a foundation for a lot of the approach later in the music that we ended up making together do you think That's it's great.
0: all do you think it's like the punk thing um and uh like does the fact that you both had military parents play into your relationship yeah. you think yeah.
1: yeah we joke in our band i mean it's a it's a terrible pun i think ben would roll his eyes that i'm even making it right now but we always joke that we put the punk in punctual because <laughs> <laughs> um, we're like if, i mean it's a weird philosophy in our band i mean i'm because ben and i are wired that way it's like if you're not five minutes early you're late full stop because yeah. our our dads were that way you know and so yeah. you know we really we really value being on time and punctual like to uh to a degree that's, you know, very frustrating for people that travel with us or that are kind of, you know, it's a, it's a thing, you know, I mean, I, I'll be honest, like for this podcast, I was sitting in front of my computer for about 15 minutes before I even logged into the, to the zoom. Cause I was like, ah, if I show up too early, it's just going to look weird, but I'm <laughs> here. I mean, I'm ready to go, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, I think, so yeah, I mean, it yes, I absolutely think that our military upbringing and, and again, like you know, the, the things about our military upbringing that I think were that interesting and kind of give insights into, because I felt this way about military brats kind of as I've lived and grown all over the world. There's something, you know, about growing up in the military where, you know, there's a forced move as a family, you know, every three to four years, like clockwork. And so your roots don't ever really get set, set down deeply. Um, but as a result, everyone that you're in school with because you're going to a lot of these military-based schools they're all in a similar based situation and you end up with this incredible ability to make good friends fast um, because you you don't have a lot of time you know everyone is on a on a ticking clock around moving and stuff and so I think that you really get good at kind of getting into people's character quickly and really finding the connections uh, deeply with people fast and that I think Ben is wired that way. I think I'm wired that way, and you know, he and I kind of connected. Even I think, um, you know, subconsciously, just before even established that we were military brats, there was just an ease about a friendship with him that kind of grew out of this way that we were brought up. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, our fathers—he was a a Navy brat, I was an Army brat, but it kind of doesn't really matter. There's a lot of similar uh, similar stories in our lives um, around the military system you know that we grew up in which is fun
0: my my uh dad was a military brat and it was interesting left military school gotten a rock and roll and getting that whole thing you know but it's it's interesting how much it affected him like he's very much on time like he's a kind of a a a laissez-faire kind of person but he's definitely always on time and still spit polishes his boots
1: like every day, I still polish. I polish my <laughs> shoes. That wasn't a thing in my house. I mean, I didn't have a dad that was like, "I'm bouncing a quarter on your sheets of your bed." You know, it wasn't that strict. But like, there was just sort of like a. I mean, I watched my dad do it. He said, "You know, you got to take care of your boots." You know, and yes. uh, and so I I will still I have a pair of like Blundstones because I never got good at the laces and everything else. And I'll just you know I I take I, I try to try to take waterproof them every every winter you know that kind of thing <laughs> i don't know yeah. it's, it's odd those things that carry over you know yeah that's funny it's also amazing <laughs>
0: how many military brats you know not to appropriate your term but like wind up yeah. in punk too right and i think uh True. interesting rollins yeah, interesting. right you know yeah. there's, there's a lot wow. that yeah. wind up in this thing
1: yeah you know what that's interesting i never even really put that together until right now but yeah there is a there is a common yeah I, which is Cause it's interesting. Cause I, I would wonder, my, my first guess would necessarily be around just, you know, coming from homes that are really structured and, and those structures because they are, you know, are kind of rigid in the home front, you become aware of them and then distrustful of them. Uh, and, or in, in some ways it becomes, you know, from your earliest age of, you know, this notion of authority and, and kind of pushing on that in a, in a way that isn't like a typical, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, I, I'd be curious to unpack that with a room full of, military kids that were also punk rockers and see what what common threads emerged through that conversation probably more than i would even think but that's that's interesting good point huh nick if you ever
0: want to do a spin-off turn out a punk podcast and be part of this network i think we found the hook
1: (laughs) i think we did you know let's let yeah raised yeah raised our raised military turned out a punk how many people let's (laughs) let's see yeah I
0: think, it, I think i want to will... know
1: i really want to know the people i want to talk to are the people that were brave enough and courageous enough to really go there and show up at home with you know dyed hair mohawk i mean like let's like really push on the the things that would just drive a military uh, father or mother like bananas because i i never had that courage i never did you know all i you know i i, I always wanted to so bad but in the end, and but I also so here's the thing: when I was in high school or junior high, um, there was a term that we used uh, derogatorily called "safety punk," Um, and these were kids that were that would show up dressed like punks at school, but very quickly could go into a bathroom and remove their garb and then look like a straight laced person. You know, like recomb their hair and like oh, so you your hair is up in a mohawk, but it's actually not shaved into a mohawk, or <laughs> yeah. it's not you know, and so that term got into my head i mean it was kind of a version of being a poser you know or whatever that word meant then or doesn't mean anymore but i remember to be accused of being a safety punk was just like that was that was the end of your career as a student as a as you know (laughs) you were just done so i was i was in this world where like you can't you either going all in or none in because if you go halfway you're a safety punk and that's just not the way you can you're not going to get anywhere you know in that side so i just didn't go in because i was just too nervous and scared so again all the credit in the world to the brave the brave souls that would you know men and women that would just that would go all the way with i mean piercings and like uh you know stick stick and poke tattoos and stuff i mean all these things were happening i was just like what are you doing that's so incredible I wish I could do that. I just can't. (laughs) I don't know
0: how many of those people wish they still had those stick and poke tattoos years later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, you know, I I hope no regrets, you know, I hope they look back and they're like, this was a, this symbolizes a time in my life when, when this seemed like the most important thing I could do. You know, I, I don't know. I, I hope no regrets. Yeah, (laughs) one would hope,
0: but I'm sure there are a few where it's like, do I really need these terribly done black flag bars or do I, should I get it covered up with a better (laughs) tattoo? (laughs) Oh
1: yeah. I mean, boy, I tell you, speaking of tattoos. Yeah, there was, I mean, Oh yeah. I remember consider, there were lots of punk tattoos that I considered black flag bars were huge. I'll never forget being at the very first Lollapalooza festival. Rollins band played. Um, and, uh, this this came through Enumclaw, Washington. It was like Jane's addiction, ice tea, fishbone, Rollins band, Susie and the Banshees. Um, and I—that was the first time I saw a number of young people in my general age bracket with Black Flag bars tattooed on them, and I was like, "That is the coolest thing I could have ever met." That I saw that uh, tattoo. I saw the like Eitron Nubaton symbol <laughs> yes. tattooed on people. I saw the Misfits uh, skull face uh, uh, tattooed, and like I was just like, "Oh, that's so cool." I'm putting these all on the short list of immediate tattoos for me to get whenever I get free of my house, you know, and my, and, and, and old enough to make that choice. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I never did. Cause by the time I was at that point, they were certainly played out. Um, but I, I, I still, there's a deep part of me that, you know, still wishes that I actively skateboarded and had those, you know, had black flag bars tattooed somewhere on me. <laughs> I think, I felt like a missing part of my childhood somehow. You know, maybe I'll reclaim when I'm much older. Now <laughs> retired, you know, least stage <laughs> tattoo, punk tattoos. It's like, wow, Nick Nick turned seventy for his seventieth birthday. He got the black flag bars tattooed on his throat. Can you believe that? Why? What's he doing? You know,
0: I've always said when I turn seventy, that's when I'm going to try cocaine and and just like go all in because it's like, you know what? fuck it
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah. right yeah i mean at that point yes exactly like but you know you're 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 on the downhill slide kids are gone you know let's yeah that'll be you know what they put a pin in this one that's another idea like years from now turned out a punk like the retired edition of like <laughs> yeah. where everybody's at from you know coming to you live from the retirement home and like there's going to be a rebirth in like geriatric punk bands i just can see it. it's gonna be awesome can't
0: wait i i think we all live have you seen that um SNL skit where Fred Armisen gets up and does his hardcore band, his daughter's wedding. Nailed it.
1: Absolutely nailed it. Yes, to- totally. Our yeah, kids live in hard... fear of that. <laughs> Isn't it a funny thing? I mean, that's also, yeah, you know, another offshoot for you, turned out a punk, you know, dad punk edition. Like, there's a weird thing about being a father and raising a child and having this philosophy these this aesthetic these this music in my life and trying to figure out like because it still resonates and I still in my heart still feel as, as the as old as I was the minute I discovered it but then I'm very acutely aware of my dadness and I just feel very uncool most of the time and yes. uh and it's a it's a very strange split I, I actually was so funny before again before I got on this podcast I was like Man, I don't know what we're going to talk about. I am not an interesting person. I, I'm just a dad. I'm just trying to raise my daughter. You know, I play play bass in a band. You know, and uh, I'm just you know, I don't know what. Boy, I hope he's not disappointed in this interview. <laughs> no, because it was awesome. You know, because you know the the, the dadness thing is a it, it's it's it, it's a it's an interesting mental thing to figure out. You know, it's it funny. is definitely it is it, it yeah. is the most. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: And grounding thing in the world to, like, finish an amazing show and come home and know none of it means shit.
1: Yes, totally, like,
0: totally. I know. I, like, no. who fucking cares, Dad? Like, I, I'll finish some of these podcasts, I'll come upstairs, and I'm like, you'll never believe what I learned. I can't believe this. And they'll just be like,
1: shut up, please just shut up. <laughs> It is funny, man. It is. I, you know, I like it though. You know, I like that sort of internal uh, uh, check and balance from a kid of just keeping you, keeping you, keeping your eyes on, on the work, you know, keep you humble. I like it. Vera, Vera, my daughter's name is Vera. And she's very uh, outspoken about which songs that she likes and which ones she doesn't. She's very matter of fact about it. And you're like, okay, fair enough. You know, good. Has no idea about anything. Just immediately. will tell you this is a good one. Don't like this one, you know, and I appreciate that kind of, feedback in its own way.
0: <laughs> and as much as I don't want to push them into it because I don't because I do feel like punk is a religion, like I say this all the time on the show now where yeah. You know, yeah. like it's some it's something that stays with you your whole life yeah. and you don't want to push your kids into it, but I'm glad it still exists if they get to a point where they're like I want to start going to these shows. I'm glad there's kids that have kept this going and that it's still,
1: yeah. you know, a vibrant yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I think it's always going to, because again, like you said, the philosophy is the thing it's the, and religion is, if, they, if you want to call it that, I think that's a great way of framing it too. There is, there's a, once you start find once you start, you know, teaching somebody to see that, then you find it through all forms of artistic expression. Like you said, film, fashion, I mean, music, photography, any of it, and you start to just understand and connect your world aesthetically in a way that I think to me is very interesting. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, not to wax too philosophical about it, but I am so envious of kids growing up today because there are really no rules around genres and any of this. I mean, it is, I mean, like, you know, it's being a safety or being a poser is not even a, a, a term that even, even applied any longer because what does that even mean you know like that that used to mean that you were betraying something about this clique that you were a, a member of or something you know and now it's just like look you can like music across the genre you can and that is such an exciting to me and very punk rock thing to be able to face the the sum total of artistic output through the portal of a computer and be able to say, I find my thread through this. Like I get to decide what I like and what appeals to me and I make my own sense of it. Like no one's telling me that this is the only stuff I can like or this is the only clothes I can wear or this is the only hairstyle I can have or whatever the things were that were seemed so rigid when I was a kid um, that really were about identity and identity formation and and defining yourself as an individual. Now it's just like, the world is so open in that way. For me, it's a lot of anxiety, (laughs) you know, like it seems like I get option anxiety in that, but like the freedom in that is just remarkable and so punk, you know, like I just think, wow, you are just unburdened by, these things i mean we used to burn bands at the stake by what label was putting their records out or not you know and yeah. now it does not matter you know and like how much music did we miss you know by doing it i don't know you know it's just like anyway it's a it's an exciting time that way i am very like you said punk gets to live as a religion because it's it's about a the philosophy it's about a you know it's 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 not about uh uh anyway i i I'm losing my words here because I'm suddenly sitting here thinking about how overwhelming and large this point is that I'm trying to make, but it's, it's really not that big of a deal. It's just a simple, like, yeah. And the, the freedom in that to choose your path is so empowering. It's super cool. Well,
0: like, and now, you know, the idea of, you know, majors and indies just, there is a difference, but like those large scale Indies, like, like beggars group level Indies and majors are yeah. very similar at this point, but yeah, yeah, you guys, yeah. you got you guys came from a world where that shit was like, like Jello Biafra. I always say got his legs broken at the Gilman because of like some perceived notion of selling out. Like,
1: yes, yeah,
0: it, it was real for our generation of kids. Very real.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we were around when Jawbreaker made the move and what yeah. happened. You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, these people are, are still that...
0: pissed about that. Like Jesse yeah. from Blatz came on. He's still heated about them signing to a major label. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I'll tell you where we got burned. And this was like a weird kind of awakening because it, it, it started to change for us right around the photo album. And you know, it was, we were very, very, um uh, you know, I think proud of the fact that we were on an independent label in Seattle, a true independent that, you know, had, you know, we were friends. We had a handshake deal. This was like, you know, we were in a van. We were at, you know, we were really just our hands were on doing it ourselves and we had this we felt very pure way of and very in step with bands that we looked had looked up to like fugazi and things like that in terms of their their approach to career and career building and we were on tour we had just released the photo album we were on tour that fall and um we were coming back home in like december heading back towards or maybe like anyway, deep winter, but we were heading back for the holidays, you know, getting back home and we, our record had been out and we had sold like 20,000 records of photo album at that point, which for us was a lot of records. And we were just excited because, Oh my gosh, our tour turned out. Okay. You know, we didn't lose any money, but we're going to come home and we're going to get this money from selling these records, you know, this first push. Um, and this is just exciting for us. And we got a call from our label guy, uh, josh who uh, started and and, uh, ran bar and he's like i've got really bad news um the distributor that takes your records from us and brings them out to the record stores uh has gone bankrupt um and they are they have seized all of their um their warehouse of stuff they're not paying they're prioritizing the payouts for like big artists like you know, big major label artists first. And then, you know, basically, we're not going to get paid for 20,000 records. So you're not going to get paid for 20,000 records. And I just suddenly realized, like, as hard as we had tried to maintain this sense of like, DIY control and all of it, there's still a choke point in a major corporation, a distributor that would take records. And so I mean, we weren't alone in this, this was affecting tons of indie labels and all of this. And we were just like, that's when I realized, like, oh man, this is this notion of indie, major, all of it is smoke and mirrors a lot of times. Because in the end, if Britney Spears and Jello Biafra are using the same distributor to put their music in a store, other than hand delivering, I'm sure, you know, whatever they're not doing that's the same, but there is the same focal point that's happening then they're kind of in the same way. They're both yoked to the same thing, you know, and there's not much to me difference in that point. And it was kind of this, this really sobering moment where the the structures that were sort of laid bare for me at that point, I was like, man, you really got to just, it it just seems so it, suddenly not as crisp as it was. And I remember after that just thinking like, wow, I don't need to put so much stock into, into this, this, this weird division between major and in, in indie and what that meant. And then we also had a lot of friends and bands that were on independent labels that were not getting paid and getting screwed over by poor business practices of ind- independent labels. And that sort of utopia of we're all here to support each other was just kind of getting really peeled back in a way that was quite ugly um, and didn't seem like one was suddenly better, a clear, better choice than the other. Um, so... You know, it's not like that was the moment we were like, we're going to sign to a major label someday. But that was just a moment where we were like, we are very powerless in this industry system. And uh, if we're going to continue to travel around and play music, we need to rely on it to some degree. Well, I'm not able to physically hand deliver records to a record store in Milwaukee, living in Seattle. We need someone to do it. What does that look like? You know, and like it just became a whole other thing. And then, of course the world shifted even again later, you know, with stuff that made, kind of made it permissible, but we, we sort of vowed to ourselves that we were never going to be the first one through the gates because of what had happened to Jawbreaker and these bands, like you said, that we we saw very tangible blowback and examples of bands that had tried to make the jump uh, to commercialism too soon or whatever, and just got completely savaged. Um, So we were just like, no we're not gonna we're not gonna allow that to happen. We're gonna wait and see what happens to some of our peers that are gonna do it first um, to some degree and 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 when it looked like oh you could be modest mouse and sign to a major label and still maintain your you know your sense of who you were and your music and your aesthetic and all of it, maybe it's not that bad and if you could be you know and so we started to see examples of that trickle in later into our career kind of a little more little less of a of a of a thing, you know.
0: It was like Modest Mouse, I guess, the first of your kind of wave of bands to do it. Shins were after, I
1: guess, too, right? <sighs> I mean yeah, Shins a little bit after because they were kind of pop to start. Um yeah. I mean yeah, I don't know. I mean I think you know we we had noted we had known bands that have had jumped and signed like it's a band from Seattle that we were good friends with Harvey Danger that um mm-hmm. uh had a big single and signed to a major label and kind of didn't have a very good experience. By that point, we had met the guys in Spoon, and and they had had gone through Electra and then realized that wasn't a good experience. And you know, we there were there were stories, and there were things kind of floating around in the world um, about that. Modest Mouse was certainly they were kind of a little bit before us. They were definitely kind of really like further along in their career than than we were when we first started get started kind of going, and so. They kind of were blazing a, a trail that was very interesting. I think w- whether we were consciously trying to follow it or not, I don't know. But we were just aware of them being a local band, and like they were, they seemed to be kind of doing things that made sense to them, and then we kind of respected that about them. Um, but so yeah, I mean, I would think that like from this area, like Built to Spill and Modest Mouse both were kind of major label bands that um, were kind of like us that were able to sort of make that transition and yet somehow still maintain their identity and keep their, their sense of self intact. And that was admirable. You know, Mm. there wasn't like this big shift. I think there was a big scary thing about, you know, if you were going to sign to a major label, then suddenly you were going to have to, you know, start wearing, you know, different clothes and, and hanging out with different people. And you'd have to change everything about who you were to, to be polished and, some way you know and it was nice to see that there were bands that were you know could be just their scrappy selves and it really was just about those labels helping people get their hands on the music that 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 spoke to us i think uh certainly took a little bit of the apprehension out of it anyway that's like
0: when ben was on the show he kind of hit me to the uh fact that c6 steve uh, was like kind of a he was like recording bands he was like ro- I know he wrote e for Modest Mouse for a hot minute too but he was yeah, like kind of yeah. like a a bit of a like a, I don't know scene focal point a little bit at the time
1: yeah yeah that's interesting yeah that's again yeah like, there was a like I said yeah like that's, yeah he's right C6 got a like a huge European following it's amazing like we went over there and he's just like cult hero it's amazing. Oh, he was like
0: on morning shows in England when we were over there, yeah, and then yeah, when Ben told yeah. me that, it blew my mind.
1: <laughs> like yeah, what? Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's you know, there's lots of this was all sh- you know, kind of shadow of grunge sort of stuff, and yeah, there was like I said, there there was such a uh a a, a, a a local scene that had sprung up around that Seattle explosion that happened in the you know early mid nineties that, you know, suddenly, yeah, you, there were places that were, you know, pressing plans for CDs. There were, um, you know, uh, there were screen printers and photographers and studios and music stores and all of these things sprouted up around that, that explosion that then became the feeder for what came next. Uh, and yeah, so like you had these, the, the scene is still to this day, I mean, Seattle's still small. It's still a small city really. Um, and and so you just run into the same people in these in these you know small groups uh and you know there was a lots of like people playing with other people and doing other projects and you know moonlighting and helping people out and you know like i'm you know an early part of our band i'm sure ben talked about that was you know he and chris were really involved in, in lots of other musical sort of side projects and things that i moonlighter played bass in a and recorded part of a record with a, a band another rock band from seattle here called juno um we were all kind of in this world even though we were kind of maybe aesthetically really differently in terms of our musical output we we're still just a small community of that so like and that came you know like obviously like seasick being a part of the modest mouse orbit and all of these people just kind of mixing up in town it you know wasn't that wasn't that big it wasn't that you know there were, you kind of knew everybody that was doing stuff, you know, in some ways, which is cool. Well, and also just like
0: an extension of that punk I find is super small and not that big because uh, I had no idea you were involved in Juno, but my friend put out, I think their first seven inch on Magwheel records.
1: Oh really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was part of um, a future lived in past tense, which their second full length. Um, They had a bass player on their first record um, named Travis who left the band. um, And then, they had been writing and starting to write and make uh, make stuff with Nate Mendel from Foo Fighters, yes, because uh, he was in Sunny Day Real Estate and they were friends and Brotherhood
0: um, and Diddly Squat yeah.
1: and yes, uh, exactly. And so Nate had started with them, but then he got tied up with some Foo Fighters obligations, and I had time off from Death Cab, and so I was like, "Well, I'll help you guys. You know, I'm I'm in town. Like, let's play music." And so I spent time working on like, and then when we recorded the record, like Nate recorded the songs that he had done with them. I, so that record split the bass duties are split between me and Nate on, oh, wow. on a, on a future lived in past tense. Yeah. Which maybe someday those, those records have been long out of print. They were on DeSoto for a while, but I don't, I don't know where they're going to show up again. I hope, I hope they see the light of day. They were, they are pretty good. I, I really liked uh, the stuff that I played on. And then I toured with them, did one kind of us tour with them. That was fun but then it was back back to death cap time i couldn't you know couldn't split my time 100 percent between between both stuff so um so i had to leave so but, speaking uh, of,
0: yeah speaking of nate like i was listening to that first death cap for cutie uh uh set from like 97 like that living uh-huh. room show yeah um, yeah and like you know there's definitely that sort of uh you know like you know obviously now this word is completely changed but like emo core kind of like influenced there yeah. Were you yeah. into like uh, Galleon's Lap or any of that sort of? Um...
1: I mean, you know, Sunny Real Estate was big. i you know, probably more like Sunny. We were, you know, there was a lot of like Midwest sort of emo core stuff that we were not aware of in the least bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, we had bonded early on. I mean, Low was a huge, a huge touchstone for the R band. Uh, all of us when we first started playing together and you know i mean touchstone for ben and i and our friendship we'd seen low when they come through town and like that 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 style was in that kind of mood our our stuff was you know the things that we gravitated towards were yeah i mean it's i can see that yeah i mean like certainly like that that all of that like the the low and the bed head and the sunny day and these things all were kind of part of that 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 sort of for us post punk stew that was sort of stirring around musically, and I think we were drawing inspiration from around that those early times in the band. Um, but you know, that, that's credit to Ben and Chris too. But you know, Ben specifically, um, I mean, they he had such a vision for the music that he was writing that as Death Gap for Cutie, that you know he had made this tape with Chris. They'd pass it around town started getting a lot of attention in terms of just like people were like, these are really good songs. Are you going to put together a band and play, you know, live? And Ben hadn't really stopped to consider that, I don't think. And he was like, yeah. And then there we had been friends and kind of tangentially playing music and in the scene for a while and, and always kind of maybe wanted to play music together. So he called me and was like, hey, do you want to come over and play bass on these songs? Um, and Chris had a friend that played drums. And that was the first lineup was me and Nate. Nathan and uh Chris and Ben but when I got you know when I first walked into the room here was a cassette here were the songs you know like the vision and aesthetically and a lot of that stuff was really baked in uh, from Ben from the from the jump you know so yeah I had my the 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 music that I was very much interested in making and and my expression as a as a player but you know uh there in the earliest phases of the band they were very much like you know there was a kind of a, a there was a path of an aesthetic path, were laid out based on that initial tape that um we were already on you know it wasn't like uh you know here comes nick harmer with his uh post-punk based sensibilities and he's really changing the sounds. like no these songs were that's what they were i was just you know getting where you fit in you know it was good
0: yeah because like eureka farm your stuff in that is very much <laughs> like post punky you know like that super. yeah
1: yeah very yeah, Frog Rocky yeah that was yeah. Our, that was the that was the band I was in yeah for sure gosh good you just you just you, you did it I can't believe you know about <laughs> Eureka Farm yeah that was awesome yeah I, I yeah the Eureka Farm thing was really fun I mean Armand who was the singer and guitar player in that band Ben was actually in Eureka Farm uh, when we first started we were we called ourselves Shed then and Ben played drums um, and Ben played drums I played bass and Armand sang and played guitar. And then because Ben was doing Pinwheel at the time and his other projects were kind of pulling him, he didn't have quite the time to focus on Shed. So we got Jason, who is the drummer in Death Cab now, and it became Jason and I and Armand, became Eureka Farm. And, and, and that was sort of led by you know, Armand's vision of, of musical output, very kind of odd, like I said, a lot of odd time signatures and kind of weird proggy kind of stuff, three-part harmonies and all that stuff. Um, And then I left that band literally like the same within like 48 hours. I'd left Eureka farm and went over to Ben's house and was like, Hey, yeah, I'll I'll play bass in death gap. And, uh, and I was in death gap from then until now, (laughs) it's kind of wild (laughs) kind of transition that way. And then later when our drummer situation was revolving, we brought Jason from Eureka farm into death gap. So there's kind of a little bit of a, weird history to that in our 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 little neck of the woods in bellingham yeah it's fascinating when you
0: think also of like your wave of bands being kind of the post-grunge there's like a almost like a musical depression in terms of bands making it out of seattle where it became like more of a
1: hindrance on a band than a it did yeah i mean there were a few bands that kind of eked out like presidents of the united states of america Mm kind of made some motion you know like there were some bands that like trying some stuff and moving but you're right there was the sort of like what are we doing now like because you know by the time we were in our you know musical sort of real high output activity prime whatever like college time like that like the, the grunge and that that sort of aesthetic oppression you know expression was a pretty, it was a dirty word like mm-hmm. that was a like people really wanted to move on from that up here because it had just gotten so out of control and then certainly with Kurt Cobain's suicide and all of that Like it was just this thing to not try and be any longer. And then there was this sort of like, well, what is it? What, what is the Northwest if we're not grunge, you know, (laughs) like that's the, everyone says it's the sound of Seattle. What are we now? You know? So, I mean, that wasn't that kind of wasn't like a a giant meeting of musicians in a room (laughs) all voting or something, but there was just, I remember a kind of like exploratory time when people were trying lots of different things. And so, um, pretty exciting so yeah like you could live in a world where you had you know uh, a, a a full weird folk project next to a three-piece prog band next to uh you know all of these things all made sense because there were really no there wasn't a sense of like what a, a scene was yet it was kind of like what are we trying what are we doing what makes sense like-minded individuals let's start there you know it's wild in 1998 you know that eureka
0: farm record that you play on comes out and death cab for cutie comes out uh, you guys do the yeah. first some of the first stuff uh, i think the first tape comes out maybe or not, yeah yeah the
1: for, uh, 98 the first record uh, 98 comes out yeah first tape tape is like 97 uh 96 97 with yeah the, the tape death Cab for cutie, you can play these songs with chords and then something about airplanes we re-record as a band we re-record a bunch of songs from you can play these songs with chords plus a couple extra for, um, for something about airplanes was the first proper death cab release. that was in 90 97, 98, somewhere in 98. There, 98. Yeah. 98. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's wild. Like how much it must've been wild to have
0: like two records come out the same time. Like, I guess in Eureka farms, like, you know, like it's on stone from Pearl jam's label. Right. So I imagine it was like well, kind of a big
1: deal. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 by then I was so long gone. So like, mm. you know, that, I think that there were two records I made the first one called analog and then left. And then they made another record called, um, the view. And I wasn't on that record, but those two records were on, they came through stones label, but they were kind of their own thing at that point. I was in full death gap mode. Um, never looking back, uh, at that point. So it, it and you know, that, there was never like a, a, like a, a weird split like this this certainly wasn't nowhere near like what ben went through in 2003 with transatlanticism and give up you know yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you know like this was just two records that happened to coincide in the same moment you know but like nothing nothing really had anything to do with one, the other at all for me you know <laughs> yeah A- economy of scales recognized There's but... very much yeah let's, yeah, let's just be very clear about that you know
0: but it's interesting also how pearl jam is the band that kind of stuck around and feels like yeah. they kind of shepherd yeah. that scene a little bit in a way like i guess like uh, eddie vetter's playing in hovercraft and like they're yeah. they're like part of the scene
1: yeah they are i mean that's just a testament to those guys i don't know if you've ever had jeff on your show um the, he's like a died in the wool punk rock guy too skate punk guy. i mean like that dude's i again you talk about a philosophy and talk about a religion that's in Pearl Jam, it is like, those guys are so fucking cool. They take care of each other. They take care of the people that work for them. I mean, like we, I talk a lot and we talk a lot about how much admiration and respect we have for the way that Pearl Jam has run their career. um, The way that they have, you know, stood up for the things that they believe in their charity, like all of the things that they have done. It's just, it's, it's unimpeachable. Like they are a, like a really they're a really good band and beyond that they are really good people uh and they really approach things with a high level of thought and care and um i have so much respect for them i mean they have they have brought so many local bands under their wings over the years they're free with advice they are just very approachable individuals given how incredibly successful they've been Um, it is I mean I just feel lucky that we're in a in a city where they're like the sort of to me the the very the very top of what to aspire to be uh, in Seattle as far as that goes because they they've really done a lot of of things right for me and you know people can argue all they want about you know music and whether they like the music or not but uh, you know I love their music and I love them as people they are just like I said really super 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 cool guys and like i said once you start pulling on that thread or unpeeling the onion whatever whatever way you want to put it like there is very much a punk rock philosophy behind each one of those guys and in a very real way that i think is evident pretty quickly once you start to talk to them it's cool it's really cool well going back to montana with
0: jeff right like direct diction i think is his band from there
1: yeah yeah totally yeah exactly yeah and like i mean this is a guy that like you know charitably builds skate parks you know Mm -hmm. throughout the region and like like they keep so much like again that that punk rock ethic uh is present you know right alongside their multi-platinum status you know like and it seems again like maybe like a bit of a disconnect that that that's true but it 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 is very true and if i defy any even the, the most diehard punk rocker in the world with their most rigid definitions to have conversations with any of those guys and not come away and be like yeah pearl jam's pretty fucking punk man they really are like you can't can't deny it you know well i think
0: they're like one of those bands that um like it's almost like they're like they've graduated into becoming like the lawful good grateful dead sure sure
1: that's, a, that's an interesting yeah. way of putting it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Grateful Dead being chaotic, neutral at best.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've never stopped to apply the D and D ranking to, to any of these, bands. But now you've opened up a whole. I'm gonna spend the rest of the afternoon. Uh, maybe I should rearrange my record collection. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. by by alignments. Of, yeah. But, yeah. I think it's a new way to do it.
0: That would be awesome. <laughs> well, now that we're talking geek shit. I got to ask yeah. you, because I was watching uh, Ben be interviewed by Nardwar earlier today. You yeah. were at that Star Wars, uh, what, episode three, like, special <laughs> screening, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah. It was a funny, random thing. We got an invite. I don't know through how, through management. Our manager, who's based in San Francisco, called me and was like, hey, just the weirdest thing. He called the band. I mean, he sent an email. I like, yeah. I got the weirdest thing. I got an invite for the Skywalker Ranch, which is out in, uh, I don't know where it's at in some, across the bridge from San Francisco. Um, I I got an invite from Skywalker Ranch for doing a screening of episode three, which hadn't come out in the theaters yet, but was on its way um, and wanted to invite the band down to to see it and would anybody want to go? And everybody else in the band was like, nah, I've got (laughs) stuff going on, you know? And I was like, dude, it's just getting on an airplane going to san francisco to see episode three which i'll see in the theater anyway so i might as well just go see it early that's as far as i thought it was going to be i literally was just like it's going to be an early screening of a movie cool i get to see it before my friends right so i said yes and i went down and our manager jordan and i went out to skywalker ranch and it was a whole event i mean oh dude i mean as far as like geek stuff goes like And I'm not even like the biggest Star Wars guy in the world, but like, you know, you drive into Skywalker ranch and there's like a full size X wing parked in the woods. And there's like an ad at Walker, you know, like from return of the Jedi, you know, those little over in the woods. Yeah, exactly. There's all of these things like, I mean, you're just like, and they're full size, like not just like a minute. I mean, they're like a full prop build out just for decoration on the property, you know, when you're driving in, you're like, what the heck, you get into this place. And like, they had had this big event, like invite. And like, I mean, I, very quickly, I realized I had no business being here. Uh, because I mean, we're like they invited the entire cast from that 70s show. And there were all these like, celebrities that had been invited and they had this like red carpet scene and like we were not part of it I I was just (laughs) sort of standing back being like what are we doing here and like but they kept saying like oh welcome you know here's your here's your passes here's your badges and we like get ushered in and I was with Josh we ended up with uh Josh Schwartz from the OC the guy who created the OC and our uh and he was there with his dad he became our kind of ally, friend that we knew. And he was there with Jordan and me. And so we're kind of just four of us like just flies on the wall, freaking out at this sort of spectacle in front of us, but just there to be, to see the movie. We get ushered in, we sit down in this big theater, there's a big theater in there. And lo and behold, George Lucas walks in. It's like, thanks everybody for being at the sh- screenings. You know, we talk about the movie, kind of setting it up. Everybody's like, holy mackerel, this is incredible. And then he walks down the aisle and he sits down in this sh- seats right in front of me. <laughs> and I'm like right to my just down and over to my right and right next to like near Josh Schwartz and his dad is George Lucas is sitting in the theater watching the movie with us and I'm like this is incredible like this guy like invented my imagination as a child you know and here he is and when we watch you know episode three and you know. I don't even remember the movie because the entire time I'm just sitting there being like, I'm sitting in a movie theater with George Lucas watching a movie that he made. This is just wild. And then he stood up and he was shaking hands and he signed my little badge thing. He was like, Oh, it's so glad you guys are here. He was like the nicest dude. And like, this was sort of like, there. I don't think we could use cell phones or maybe I didn't have, I think I know I had a cell phone at that point, but like Jordan and I were just absolutely speechless. And we like, I remember we went back to his office after we were done and we like basically sent out emails to in the band. And we were like, dudes, you all fucked up really bad. Like why <laughs> this is incredible to be a part of this moment, you know? Yeah. And what the heck I would, would I ever get to do anything like that again in my life? But yeah, that was ama- amazing. It was just like this weird thing that we got invited to do and of course i was just like in the mode of like sure let's go do it and then it it just spiraled into something i never expected um it was really fun (laughs) it's just like yeah and so yeah the nerd in me was just like what i don't even (laughs) have as you can tell even right now i'm still maybe unpacking it you know it's just uh, um, something that just feels like of a different i feel like disassociated from the memory in a way that like i didn't really happen to me you know (laughs) <laughs> it's funny.
0: <laughs> I, it's funny with like uh, kids. I've got a new appreciation for those prequels, and I, yes. I want and, and three is the best of the of the three. I
1: I agree. Yeah, I actually just this last weekend watched Star Wars for the very first time, Episode Four, with my daughter. It's the first oh, time she'd seen it. That's yeah. awesome doing that the
0: first it, time. It's so fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, eight. You know, she there was a level of like, what's going on here? You know, just kind of understanding the rebel and the. Empire rebellion in the Empire just you know, a lot the, the of trade structures. politics. Yeah, yeah, but... yeah, exactly. Like she's not exactly sure what's going on, but like you know, she she clued in on the archetypes pretty quickly. She knew bad guys and good guys and all that stuff. And like it it was fun. It was pretty exciting to 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 watch that movie again with yeah with a kid next to you. Like you're saying, you know, it just changes changes your your lens into it. Gets you yeah. revisited again. I think
0: about it, like when my mom showed me the Wizard of Oz for the first time as a kid. And I'm oh. Like, oh, it's like that
1: old now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's who I don't like those. There's a lot of those those math games that come up, you know, and yes. I don't I don't like playing those games any longer. You know, people are like, did you know that Neil Young is as old as you are? You know, like these weird. You're know, like, yes. oh, no, I don't want to. Let's not do that. Oh
0: yeah time time now, has time. changed it's different Time now. has
1: changed it's different now it is yes. different now <laughs> it is. that's so cool yeah we I'm excited to I don't know how so as a father who has shown the first three episodes one, two and three to his children mm-hmm. do they register? I'm nervous about starting that or they should i mean eight years old seems a bit hard to get into sort of trade wars yes. with you know it, it's <laughs> it's amazing how all the things that we
0: hated about it. I'm I'm assuming you were not a fan necessarily of fan of Menace when it dropped the first time around.
1: No. I yeah. mean honestly like you said episode three was about as good as those three got and yeah. and even then there was some flaw I don't know. I I I try really hard to not crap on the things that mean a lot to me in general, but that's real. They're I don't <laughs> I get it. I get it. And don't but praise them. I don't praise them. Yeah. But it's
0: interesting how I guess this is the genius of of George in a lot of ways because how much of that movie now hits with kids like the CGI and all this stuff that we were like, uh, well, I was just like, Oh, I hate this. My kids are like, Oh, this is great. Like, this is exactly what I want. Oh, Jar Jar Binks. Perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for.
1: So maybe, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I wasn't ready for, maybe, maybe my daughter will love Jar Jar. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not really that big of a, I don't know. Yeah. I'll show you (laughs) this right now. because of the debate in the world this is my favorite uh uh oh yes <laughs> it's my from when i was a kid it's my my credo you know, that i kept because you know
0: he shot first
1: he shot first you know <laughs> it's a very yeah. loaded character in it the is Star Wars it, universe
0: <laughs> and it's just like you realize how much and then it's i think when you start making music my my relationship my sympathy for george lucas changed where I realize now how much people like want to see us just play one period of our music forever yeah. and how much of of their understanding of what I put out there as a as a quote unquote artist is dictated yeah. by nostalgia and I I think George you know was like that he was trying to be a true artist like he's like fuck your nostalgia I'm going to piss all over your childhoods
1: Yeah I mean yeah I mean and that ain't, you're right he was just like look these are the movies I want to make this was something I I know you feel like you own this because it, you know, it had such a huge cultural impact, but like, this was mine to start. Mm-hmm. And, it, mm-hmm. and it was like kind of the ultimate, like, this is still mine. Um, and yeah, you're just like, uh, okay, man. But like, I gotta, I mean, I gotta go along with the ride and there's still a lot there. I don't know. I, 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 I appreciate the fact that he pushed and not, and didn't just, you know, didn't just deliver something that was so predictably what everyone wanted that, that has some admiration for me, but, but man, there's also a lot too, that didn't quite land, you know? So, so it's a weird thing. Like, you know, we talk about that too in our bands, like just about trying to find that balance between like keeping yourself engaged interested in pushing into some territory that you find really satisfying and interesting to explore, but also being very aware of what you're good at and what, 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 is, you know, not necessarily what people want from you, but, you know, at the same time, like not running away from the things that necessarily come naturally uh, for the pure sake of changing it up, you know? And so, you know, having a good sense of self in that is is something that, you know, I think is always an ongoing conversation, especially the longer you get a chance to play music and make records. You're always, you know, asking yourself, like, where, you know, where do we? Where do we push? Where do we pull? And and what you know? How, is this underthought? Is this overthought? All all of that. And I you know, I have a lot of sympathy for. I mean, filmmaking is such a massive endeavor with so many people and opinions. You know, going into it, how a movie ever gets made is beyond me sometimes. Uh, and certainly, how one gets made that sticks to a singular vision. <laughs> like wow, how did that happen? You know, like that's yeah. a rarity. Uh, you're very lucky in bands, you know, to just basically be like, "This is our thought, this is our expression," and we can just, honestly, we could upload it to SoundCloud right now and get immediate feedback. We don't, you know, we could, you know, we, we could ruin our we whole career. We could make Phantom <laughs> Menace tonight, <laughs> exactly. But you know, there's not a lot of extra of of extra voice and input. It's a very pure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, line from your head to the world that way, you know, uh, and that's that's refreshing, you know. I think in some ways. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We, you know, I think, I, I think it's interesting when you start talking about like, you know, legacy and, 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 you know, I, I don't know, you know, this though, as a, as, as a songwriter, as an artist, as, you know, however you want to define yourself, but you're really the only way forward is forward, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, you just got to keep going forward. You can't, you can't get stopped. Look, you can't stop yourself looking over your shoulder. Cause I think that's when it gets complicated the worst, you know? But it's interesting how there's like that like you're saying
0: like there's that questioning that goes because you do have this relationship with your audience at a certain point where they become another yeah. person in the room in a way where like yeah yeah you know, you know because you like to extend that religion metaphor like you owe it to the congregation that's been giving you the tithing over these years to not throw something in their face and and like become like well why did I invest in this band why did I believe in this band
1: to, Totally. I mean, to, to pull on your, to pull on your thread though, or to expand on your thread, like, you know, your role should be as a, you know, you're a guide. You, know? mm-hmm. you, you the, the worst part is to just throw something in their face and say, deal with it. What you need to do is guide them. You know, like this is where we're going and I'm here. Let me, let me, uh, let's do our best sort of. So you can see that, you know, follow that with us. You do, you want to bring people along. You don't, I think, you know, it'd be a weird situation to get into where you are so unpredictable as an artist that no one ever knew what was coming next. Like, that would be wild and fun, I suppose, intellectually. But like, as someone who wants to invest time and money into an artistic expression, there is a level of I kind of want to know what I'm going to get, you know, Mm -hmm. that you that you want from your favorites, you know. Um, But I also think, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a funny line to walk because, you know, you do get into that notion of like keeping yourself as the creator engaged and then also um, keeping the people that you're making your thing for engaged as well. And hopefully I do feel like sometimes people can maybe make too much concession to that exchange. Um, And I think that's something to, to kind of be aware of at times because it's, It's comfortable, I think, to make that concession to be like, "Oh, this is what they want from me, and this is what I do, so I'm just going to do that." And then, you know, there is some, there is something in this about a slight level of unpredictability, you know, Mm -hmm. because in that comes some discovery. I think. Anyway, because I um, know, like,
0: if you were to put out like, you know, like a Limp Bizkit cover record tomorrow, (laughs) and you know, like people might leave the church. You know, people yeah, might they, not might, so. they
1: might leave the church and maybe that's what you want. You know, maybe yeah. every once in a while people are like, I just want my church to empty out. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, those are, these are questions that like in the end, I think, you know, there is a, there is a, there is, you know, to expand the, the religion thing. I like this. There is a spiritual component to, uh, to making anything that you're kind of trying to tap into each time and, I don't know, you know, what that looks like for each individual person who's out there creating, but I know that, you know, when you find that moment, you know, it it's it, it's the thing that I think you end up looking for and continuing to find and and try for forever, you know, and whether that means the congregation stays full and keeps growing into a mega church or it goes the other way and you're, you know, preaching out of the back of a van in a parking lot, you know, that's not for that. Those sometimes are bigger questions than I have even answers for, but I always feel like, listen, if you believe in what you've done and if you feel like you've connected to that spiritual place in you, that that's satisfied. And that's, and that answer for you is I needed to do this, then that's enough. You know, that's enough really. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, And hopefully, you know, it's, it, it's, it's so funny though, you know, you know, tangentially related to this kind of conversation. It's just like how much content there is in the world these days to find that in. Um, and that becomes its own struggle too. It's like, it's one thing when there's, you know, three churches to choose from in town. It's another thing when there's like everybody's living room has, you know, a congregation, you know, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. Uh, I get, like I said earlier, there's an option anxiety in that, that I find, find it really hard to kind of sift through the noise a little
0: bit. Well, it's all, it's like, I think when David Bazan was on the show, he talked about getting to a point in his life where he was beginning to question religion. And then he yeah. and Mackay kind of filling that same sort of like role in a little bit of a way, you know, and like there's the like giving a moral compass and like some sort yeah. of like you know and yeah, I mean, yeah let's
1: he Ian Mackay is a saint I really like he I mean he would he would hate he would hate me for saying that but like you know that uh, I think he you know for as a, a as a as the leader of a congregation he is you know his position is is he is just like uh, I can't say enough good things about him he is he has helped a lot of people find find a way through the world uh in a good way that's awesome that he I didn't know that Dave had that connection to him in in that way. And it makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it mm-hmm. really does. Yeah. When
0: you think about how many kids have that connection to him and even like the people yeah. that reject him, like it's a polytheistic faith that we have here because yeah. there's like lots of these gods out there, yeah. but like you know, even when people reject him, there's like almost like a religious component to like the 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 vitriol <laughs> they feel towards this guy that yeah. they are they're, they're
1: probably never going to yeah.
0: meet, you know? Like yeah
1: yeah punks are passionate people man <laughs> you know, it is it's they, a passionate they, movement it is a passionate movement one way or the other yeah yeah the, the vitriol and the and the celebration uh, both very very hard but yeah it's funny we when we started this last tour uh the death Cab and postal service tour uh, we started in washington dc and uh a friend of ours lance bangs was uh out filming and doing some stuff and he's friends with ian and he was like hey i was just talking to ian do you and ben want to go over to the discord house uh and and see it and ben and i'd never been to the discord house and i was like yeah let's go let's go see it and ian called ian and ian met us there and like ian walked us in the door and i'm telling you man i i i don't even really have the words to express how emotional that whole experience was for me and I know for Ben too, I mean, we, Ian was beyond gracious. He was, I mean, and, and the thing about it is he would do that for anybody that showed up at the discord house and was curious about seeing it and, 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 and hearing the stories and talk about it. And like, he's just, I, I don't know. I have a lot of admiration for him and what he has, what he has been a part of and or built directly um, is just there's no words, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's like it was like going to a a holy site, you know. It really mm-hmm. was. Very close. There were moments yeah. in there, there. Were moments inside when you know we were talking, and I was just like, I started welling up because I was just like, if the little kid in me, you know, the kid in me that first listened to Minor Threat, you know, if I pulled him aside and said, "Hey, dude, someday you're gonna meet this singer and you're gonna be," and I would have just been like, "No way," you know, yeah. that doesn't that doesn't happen you know and then you meet Ian, and then you're realizing like he's been doing it for years nonstop for everybody you know it's so cool it's just such a such a cool thing anyway i don't well, it sound like i'm getting too like sycophantic about it or something like i'm too like oh he is a god you know but like no i just have a lot of respect for the guy and he is he has changed a lot of lives i'll say that
0: yeah Nine like and i you know i f- i feel um like number one i know he doesn't for a fact he doesn't do it for everybody um it's like but it does feel like because i've been one of those people blessed enough to get the opportunity to do that thing it does feel like a quasi-religious experience getting to do that and especially like walking through that like i've seen this in in another state of mind i've seen this in countless documentaries or photographs and all these places and It is, it's like a temple to the purity of punk and this idea that like this can be this chase special thing Yeah, in, in his version of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the fact that he documented that or like kept every scrap of everything historically is, it's just, that is the gift to me in this as well, is that there is. It's, it's not, I think what he's done and what he tries to do, which I think is fantastic is he wants to pull the curtain back and show it all. He wants to take the mystique and, and, and the, the, the like romance out of it and make it a very practical thing. Like this is what we did and how we did it. And there's, you know, yes, you can imbue it with magic and all these other things. And there, I'm sure there's some un, definable quality in all of it that runs through too. But like, I like that, you know, there's a pr- pragmatic kind of approach to just the way you would approach making your art with your friends that he's like, this is how we did it. And here's here's how it went. And we started this and we did that. And and like, you know, he showed us his the Minor Threat Tour book that, you know, and you, you've probably seen that too, or it's like, you know, he's got handwritten phone numbers in there of like, people everybody now that you would just recognize by name but here's you know there's Pusshead's phone number in the, the little book you know yeah. like there's and like and you realize like just this world of these people at pre-internet you know fat finding each other these like minds and connecting and forging these friendships and bonds just incredible and like there's a there's a kind of a blueprint for that and he's preserved that you know and that's it's really special i think that you know i I don't take as many photos as I should. I don't keep as many scraps of papers as I should. And I think, you know, having that and being able to see that and trace that, um, like historically is, is invaluable. It's so cool. And to have him explain it and hear it in his own voice. It's like, man, that's just, yeah. It's, it's like a reading scripture or something. <laughs> it's incredible.
0: What it, but it's also funny. Cause like, you know, and, and I don't mean this as a criticism against Ian, cause he, what he did, did work, but. Like any you know sect of religion he feels that his way is the the true way and the right totally. way and his yeah, version totally. of punk is is that yeah. version of punk, which is amazing yeah. to have that assuredness that I've never had myself like like you were saying about <laughs> being sure enough to be a punk to go home to show your parents yeah. in that way like i've I've never felt like what I was doing was the 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 way it should be done enough,
1: yeah. I agree. I think that there is a bravado in that, that I, I, yeah, I don't possess that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right. I, I, but I also like that, that, that it's so, so clearly defined for him in that, in that, like you said, in sureness, because it gives you something to push against and mm-hmm. and talk about and argue about. And like that to me is, you know, I like that there is some rigidity to that particular Uh, his particular way of, uh, or his approach or whatever it is, because I think that's to me, what makes it kind of interesting as a point of view and, uh, and, and something you can really, really kind of wrestle with um, um, because it's defined, you know, Um, that's, yeah. I mean that, and, you know, to bring it back around to star Wars, who knew there would be so much connection, but like, again, there's like a point of, there's a point of view there that's very rigid, and you you can argue with it, and you can be mad about it, you can love it, you can do whatever. But there it is, you know, it's not changing, um, and that's George Lucas right there. This is what I'm doing, you know, and that's there's a assuredness in that that's wild, you know, <laughs> for someone who I'm, I'm agreeing with what you just said. I don't have a lot of that necessarily sometimes.
0: Well, and I think the thing that makes Ian so special is the fact that. I don't think George would be like, Well, you go do it. Let me see, prove me wrong. You know, and I think Ian yeah. would be happy to see someone try and prove him wrong and to do
1: that. Oh yeah, about. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, welcome the challenge. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. Not be threatened by the challenge. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's how how it yeah, that's great. Well
0: I hope you're never threatened to come back on this podcast because this has been a lot <laughs> of fun, buddy. Anytime you want to. You know, to come I back. feel like I could
1: talk to you a long time, but I you know, I I think back now, like I'm already like, Man, did I just like Say a bunch of nothing. I don't know. Anyway, no, that's what the show whatever. is. This is gold, what, gold. Whatever you, whatever you want to edit out, you can edit out. You know. Um, uh, but yeah, man, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and it's fun to find like-minded people, and uh, you know, and also reminisce a little bit about, like, you know, what happened to get me to where I'm at. You know, because uh, it's all part. It's all part of it. You know, you can't. I I don't know. I it's it's been a i've been kind of in this weird looking back phase for a while this is a really good timing of this podcast from you know our our last tour where we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of transatlanticism and just like there's just been this moment of reflection at the end of this year that i didn't quite expect and this is part of that you know it's kind of look back and reflect a little bit so thank you for that really thank you (laughs) it's fun Thank you, Nick, for coming on the show.
0: And you heard right there, Nick will be back for a part two at some point in the future because there's a lot more for us to discuss and get to. And thank you, Nick, for coming on. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I really, I really like, I mean, that's why I do this thing. Fun conversations with people. That's why here. Speaking of fun, next week on the show, or next episode of the show, I should say, I got one of my all-time heroes coming on the podcast. One of the greatest guitar players ever someone who has just oh, just such an incredible tone and and, and just approach to the instrument that's just completely unique. I could go on forever. And I don't even know how to play guitar. Coming up on the next episode of Turn Out of Punk, the legend, AA, Aaron Melnick, will be on the show. You may know him from Integrity. You may know him from The Inmates. You may know him from In Cold Blood. But now you will know him from Nuclay, his fantastic uh, solo record, one of my favorite records from last year. I, I I really love this thing, and just hearing him play guitar like that again, it's just, uh, yeah, one of the one of the best, one of the all time bests. More on that next week. You can pick up the record now on Rebirth Hardcore if you are intrigued. It's it's streaming everywhere as well. But uh, I'm very excited for you all to hear it. And that's it uh, for me. Remember as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues. of faced by indigenous people all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths faiths and races and ethnicities and identities and religious backgrounds. Because at the end of the day, we're not talking about politics here. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be able to live free from hate and violence and discrimination and oppression. So if there's organizations that are affecting positive change in your world and your community, get involved, donate your time, donate uh, money if you have it It, there. Cause I'm sure they could use both and start being the change you want to see. I don't know. That sounds really self helpy and corny, but go out there and, and, and just do something. Speaking of doing something, start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast. This isn't going to change the world, but it, it will change the scene around you. Maybe put on some shows or help put on some shows or there's just so much you can do to get involved in punk. And that's the thing about punk. It's better when you get involved. So do it. Just do it. Speaking of doing things, sign your organ in our cards because, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. It's just dead weight. And as and I've seen it. With my own eyes, miracles happen when people donate organs. People can live again. So it's like a a final gift before you pass on to the other side. You don't even know the person. It's just like a... Anyway. Uh, What else do I say? Oh, try meditating. Because that can really, really help. And I am the last person on earth... To be telling someone what to do, self help wise, but uh, meditation is something that I really, from personal experience, clicked with, and it, it's it's helped me, and it probably will help you. People have been saying this for thousands of years. This, I'm not unique in saying this to you, but just try it. Some people take go to the gym and all that stuff. That's really hard. Meditating you can do from your house, and anyway, free. Uh, all cannabis prisoners too, free all drug people are in jail for just drug shit like that's ridiculous let them out let them live speaking of let them live you go out there and live this i guess it's gonna be a few days i was gonna say a week but live, live live these next few days to the fullest stay healthy stay well stay safe and i will see you on the next episode thanks for listening